until you make it. And holy crap, we are back. And this is an important episode. We're going to talk a little bit about financial literacy, about the financial markets in general, um, with our friend, return guest, Drew Benson. Quick story. Um, I got a little nervous the last time Drew was on. I was like, oh, should we be talking about tech stocks? Uh, I don't know if my company will like this if they hear this, which I'm pretty sure no one heard it. Um, Mm -hmm. The next day, I didn't work there anymore. So everything worked out really well. We got to publish the podcast. But more importantly, Maddie, we are back. Um, Thank you. Yeah, a little uh, correlation causation there. We'll have to dig into that. We may have already done that work. Yeah, it's it's good to be back. A little mini, little mini hiatus, but we're uh, we're right back after it here, starting off the summer. This is good. It's a fun topic, and this is we are in a buying time, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. But there's uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there, so we're excited to talk through this with Drew and just figure out where we should be focused and kind of what what's uh, what's happening out there in the world right now. So, Drew, since last we spoke. You have launched your own podcast. Uh, you got into this world. Tell me a little bit about what you've been up to, uh, some of the guests, what you learned in general about the podcast world, and also um, I, I see the fancy setup. <laughs> you've, you've got all in, so I'm, I'm interested to hear. Yeah, no, I've learned a lot. It's been a, a fun experience. I think the coolest part about podcasting is that you refine the craft of of public speaking and. Uh, it's made me actually a significantly better financial advisor, wealth advisor from the standpoint that I'm having to research things. Cause you have to remember when you put out content, it, it's, it's like etched in, you know, in stone and people can refer back to it. So you sort of double check, triple check your facts to make sure that, you know, it, you know, if it's, if it's slightly off in a one-off conversation, you may go back and call the person back and say, you know what, this is this is actually what happened. But when you put it out to the entire world, you need to make sure what you're saying is truthful. And so it's it's really made me sharper and a and a and a and a I think a better advisor altogether because I'm researching the markets more than ever. I've also had some fun interviews. Uh, the, the I've kind of gone back and forth. I for a while I was doing mostly solo. So just sort of my thoughts. I, I know Matt, we were talking before this the about de-dollarization. So I did a whole episode on the idea of de-dollarization, um, the idea that the United States dollar could decline in, as the world's reserve currency. But I've started to do more interviews, and the interviews are really fun and talking to people and having dialogue. I think one of the things I love most about podcasting is this is where you're actually getting truthful insight because instead of the media just cutting people off and not allowing them to have a thoughtful uh, interaction together, you know, people, famous people are going on to podcasts now and just talking and talking. So the dialogue is not happening with CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or the legacy media. Like they're, they're actually not involved in the game anymore. And I think we're seeing a real shift away from that world. And frankly, to people like you and I, and I, th- I, I think this is where the venue is going to be for thoughts and ideas. And I think it's making a lot of the elites in society really uncomfortable because they're not able to control the narrative anymore because we're having these cool dialogues. One quick story: I just interviewed a guy that I, I should be publishing this week, and he did. He's like one of the uh, a really important figure in uh, micro lending in Africa to entrepreneurs in Africa, Ooh. and the things he reveals about like like what the World Bank does and these major 
NGOs, non-governmental organizations, the devastation that they've enacted on the African continent was really like totally eye-opening to me. And then he, he shares at length about like what is actually working in Africa to help lift people out of poverty. And this is going to shock you. It's not white people from the West that are solving the problem. It's actually it's actually their own people engaging in the economy and entrepreneurship. And so yeah. he talks about how capital from the West can help them advance, but how it's not about us solving their problems, it's about them solving their problems and how he he plays into that. So that's been so fun, by the way. That's just one example. But I've, I've been able to int- interview and connect with some really cool people that... I haven't published many of these episodes yet. They're going to be coming out over the next couple months. So it's uh, it's been fun, man. It's been really fun. That's awesome. That's, that, yeah, you, you bringing that up reminds me of like one of the core tenets of why Gibby and I got into this was we specifically wanted to see how many different people we could talk to from different walks of life because there's no, like you kind of touched on it. I, I can't trust any news anymore. So if I nope. want information, honestly, you've got to like dig so deep for just like, all I want is the knowledge. And then I want to be able to form my own opinions around it. And then I want to have conversations with individuals who are experts in those areas to be able to either confirm or review my previous thoughts around it. So you touched on that. And we talked about this too, when you first, first started your podcast and you were talking about solo, or if you wanted to do interviews, you crushed the solo. It's really hard because you're just, you're basically just talking. You're just talking at the camera. Whereas, you know, you get to active listen and you don't really know where the conversation is going when you're having these conversations. But Zibi and I just wanted to learn. Like this was, it was selfish in a way that we wanted to learn from other people who are experts in fields that we just don't have the time or the knowledge in. So that's a good point. I really like that. That's, that's one of the things that I could say has been beneficial for me as well. It's fun. It, it sort of feels like you're sitting in the living room with some of these people and you're just chatting. I think some of my richest experiences in life have been sitting down with people that I trust and respect. And you just kind of keep asking them questions and they keep sharing great ideas with you. Yep. And podcasting is such a great venue for the honest for the honest dialogue. And it's really ticking off a lot of people right now because yep. the pe- the narrative shapers of society, they're they're mad because we're not willing to just it for so long. It was like they said it in the nightly news and we all accepted it. And now it's like, yeah, but there's dudes over at Stanford that have PhDs in economics and a medical degree saying the opposite of you all. Yeah. And they seem way more credible, frankly, way more knowledgeable right. and their data is spot on. So why am I not supposed to listen to that person? Yeah. That's for me. Podcasting is a venue. I, listen, I think yeah, we're all in the same Exactly. And, and really a dedication to truth. Like yep. you either, be, you either believe that there's truth or you don't believe there's truth. And podcasting is a really powerful way to help expose people to ideas and trust that people are capable and intelligent enough to arrive at truth and that they don't have to be sort of shepherded by the expert class. That's, yeah, there's a, that, that's my, uh, that's my diatribe for the day, guys. There's an expectation. There's an, when you, when you have a podcast, no matter what big, small, whatever, you, there's an expectation and there's sort of like, you know, there's sort of a responsibility to make sure that you're not just shouting nonsense because no one's going to listen to it anyway. And then you're going to lose listenership. So I think that's Yeah. Well, you got to mix, you gotta sprinkle some of it in, Gibby. We need to keep people interested. What are they going to say? <laughs> um, so you mentioned the, um, what was it? The de-dollarization? Sure. A little bit. So I'm, I'm curious if you can expand on that and talk to me like I am a 41-year-old man who uh, gets all of their uh, financial advice from the the quarterly meetings with their advisor and Yahoo Finance. Okay, so 
you're probably hearing about uh by the way there's a lot of people like you in my life matt so <laughs> i or, or, or mike uh so i i, I feel you um so what is de-dollarization? So there's this idea. What's well, not an idea? It's the reality. So the dollar right now is the is the world's reserve currency. In other words, nations will transact in in um, financial interactions in the United States dollar. So even other countries that are not involved with the United States, like China and India, as a, as a for instance, have historically actually transacted or engaged in trading via the United States dollar because it's a, a, a stable global currency. And there's historically been multiple currencies. You know, it used to be the British pound. Um, it, it's it, There are various other forms of currencies. Now, what people don't realize is that just because the dollar is the U.S. world or the, uh, the global sort of reserve currency doesn't mean that every single transaction happens in the United States dollar. So right now the the and I I'm trying to remember now the exact statistic I need to consult my own podcast by the way for That's this okay. one. Mark but the do, the dollar declined I think down into the to the 50s or 60s right now as a percent of the world's reserve currency. So it used to be about 20% higher and for the last two decades it has actually been declining. So one of the reasons I brought up de-dollarization recently in my podcast is that People are all of a sudden like noticing that it's occurring. And I think what people generally feel is that out of nowhere, the dollar is just going to decline as the world's reserve currency and it's like going to collapse. And so I started reading all these articles and getting all these questions of like, oh my gosh, Drew, I think the dollar is going to collapse as the world's reserve currency. And this is going to lead to some sort of massive crisis. And so I was like, well, what is this, the, the straight skinny on this? And so I started researching it. What I realized is that the US dollar has been in decline for two straight decades. It started in the early 2000s. By the way, and I can touch on this in a minute if you'd like me to, but I think geopolitical interventionism in the United States has been the driving one of the driving forces behind de-dollarization. And okay. so you think about it, this is right around the war on terror. It's the uh, George W. Bush's war in Iraq that starts to, to break out. And we, the more involved we got with, with, with uh, the global scene, the more that other countries started to move away from the United States dollar. And then if you, th if you think about China and, um, and the fact that we essentially kicked, uh, we really, I wouldn't say kicked, I would say we sort of poked China in the eye with tariffs and a trade war. What happened is that China realized, well, we can, we can, we can trade with, with India and other currencies or, we could we could trade with Russia and other currencies. And then I think a major factor, and this is extremely unpopular in my position on this, and I'll just be honest with you all. Yeah. Our removal of Russia from SWIFT may prove to be one of the worst geopolitical decisions we've ever made as a country. I know it sounds and feels good to really punish a bad guy like Vladimir Putin, who we all dislike. But the flip side to it is when you isolate aggressive people like Vladimir Putin, what they what they do is they seek out even worse and un, you know worse people in the world, and what they're doing is they're seeking out the Chinese instead of the United States. And so by kicking them off of SWIFT, which is essentially a just a international you know an, an international way to transact, yeah. what we've done unfortunately is we've isolated them and we've pushed them into the hands of the wrong people. And so I I think our 
global interventionism has been a series of debacles over the last couple of decades, and it's forcing people to move away from the United States dollars, whether people want to hear that or not. The two other factors is just – I just want to say this real quick. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the other factors is, has to do with we have been severely devaluing the United States dollar. So bear in mind, in 2008-9, for the first time ever in United States history, we unprecedentedly just like like printed unbelievable amounts of money, right? Uh-huh. So we added three trillion dollars to the system. The Fed's balance sheet went from one to four trillion. Uh, in other words, we we just blew out the 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 amount of dollars which eventually circulated. But even more scary is in 2020. Not only did we print that money. We print $5 trillion in 2020 for COVID response. But on top of the COVID response, they actually gave it directly to people. Yes. Right? So they, they, they sent people checks, people received that money, and they started spending that money. Where in 2008 and 2009, they actually gave it to banks, and banks held it in their vaults. Right? And so that money slowly trickled into circulation over a, a multi-year period, where now it's like, bam, all this money is circulating. That's why we have inflation, by the way. We're having an unbelievable amount of inflation because we just printed too much money. Now, that sort of devaluation of the dollar, if you look in historical, if you look historically, currencies eventually get usurped and replaced over time. And so we are just continuing to beat down our own currency. Now, here's the flip side to all of this, right? Like, I know that all these factors are hurting the United States dollar. We're still dominant, though. Like I think the euro is maybe in the low twenty percent range. I really need to pull up the data, and I'm sorry I wasn't prepared for this. That's okay. um, uh, the the euro is in the like twenties, and I think we're in the high fifties as a percent of the world's reserve currency. We're still dominant. Like we still dominate. And if think about it, do you really think the yuan, the yen, the euro, the pound, all these other currencies? Do you think they're actually going to replace the United States dollar? Because if you look at all these other countries. They have just as much national debt in many instances. You know, you know, one estimate I read is that China's debt to GDP was like in the 200 plus percent range, yeah. which is which is wild. Isn't this so the same sh- conversation too around Bitcoin? Like everybody's looking for another type of currency to replace the currencies we have. But you make a great point. None of them are like light years ahead of the others in terms of their actual value. Right. So like. And like you mentioned, SWIFT is essentially a clearinghouse, right? So that banks from across borders can work with each other. So that's like a whole other conversation. But like, I almost wonder, like, do you think we're like talking about something that's, you know, whether or not a currency somewhere will take over as the world's reserve currency over the dollar? Do you wonder if it's just people looking for something to talk about because it's so unlikely and so unrealistic for the infrastructure to support that? Like, where do you fall on that element of it? Are you suggesting like are people potentially looking to go towards Bitcoin as as well, a replacement like or see like how likely is it for a currency to actually displace another currency as like the Ex- world standard? It's extremely unlikely and it takes decades for it to occur. Like if you look at the decline of the British pound, they were the world's reserve currency, but they declined slowly over multiple decades and then the United States dollar overtook them. And so I think, yeah, it's possible that another currency could usurp the United States dollar, but it's going to take several decades. My general sense is that the United States dollar doesn't just get doesn't get replaced by another currency because there's nothing super special about the British pound as a, for instance, or the European euro. There's nothing 
extraordinarily more appealing, I would think, about those versus the United States dollar. I think what we might be experiencing in real time is actually a slow collapse of government fiat currencies. You know, in Africa, back in ancient times, they used to use beads to yeah. as, a, as a way to, uh, as a form of currency. And what happened is that um, some outsiders entered and they figured out how to manufacture more of those beads. So they flooded the supply of beads in Africa. They got re- experienced hyperinflation. And then people sought different types of currencies. And so the African bead got used syrup. Same with the, and in Central American, they used seashells. And same deal. They figured out how to harvest more seashells. They flooded the amount, uh, they flooded the supply, and that currency collapsed. So there's been a long history of currencies getting usurped by something better. I don't think the United States dollar is going to get replaced by another government fiat currency. I think what could happen, and it could take 50 more years for this to occur, but what could happen is the United States dollar gets completely replaced altogether. Yeah. Along with every other global currency. This is a, I haven't actually looked into this. It's a really dumb question. When the Fed turns the money machine on and pumps more of it into the system, they don't ever take that back and like eliminate that, right? Like once it's out there into the world, it's out of the box, right? There's no like I know quantitative easing easing is a little bit different, but like they don't that that liquidity is not taking come, the money back. <laughs> they don't take it burning cash. <laughs> yeah. So it's out there. So like it's crazy to me that. And I think about this a lot, and we've talked about this, Drew. Everybody worries about inflation and, and hyperinflation, transitory, et cetera. I think we'll just always continue to print money until what you said happens when the dollar gets devalued to the point where there's no point in printing it because nobody wants it and then it's taken over within 50 years, right? Like that's kind of like if we start thinking about like like a buying time right now, like buying stocks or, you know, yep. equities, whatever, like they're just going to keep printing money. I know that we just had a rate, uh, rate hike pause, Powell said, but like, where do you see that? Like, how does that feed into this to you? Like thinking through the dollar and then thinking through where there are opportunities for people to potentially make some purchases that everything might be discounted right now. Are you saying like, like the dollar could be discounted itself and maybe purchasing the dollar could like arbitraging currencies. Is that what you're saying? Well, a little bit like bonds or if there's value, like where do you see the value right now in using the currency that we've got to make purchases that might be at a little bit of a discount? I I hate to plead ignorance on this one. I'm not great with like the idea of, of, of arbitraging currencies or doing currency trading. That's something that I don't personally ever dabble in. Yeah. That's, like I kind of know my lanes and that that is a lane that I there's so many other factors way beyond even what I'm talking about. So we're playing the intel- we're playing a different game than everybody else who's doing that. To be intellectually fair, I, I don't uh, I'd rather you hear it from more of a true currency expert than me. I kind of know the I kind of know more of the philosophical economic side of currencies, but less about how to actually make money buying and selling currencies. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of factors. Let's yeah, make some it. some money for guests too. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> let's do talking, it. Yeah. We're talking, fantasy. Uh, fantasy. Buffett would want us to keep it simple, right? We'll keep it simple. We don't need fantasy to stock we Don't need to overcomplicate. <laughs> I can overcomplicate. So you have to stop me. No, 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 Drew. But we were talking a little bit backstage about right, like it, when the economy is like everyone. There's uncertainty, right? Yep. People are a little bit less likely. To start to dive deeper into it. But when things are booming and everything's going well, 
right? The tech stocks in 2020, when, you know, the COVID stocks, everyone glommed on. And uh, so I'm curious, like, what trends and what what ideas do you have around where we're at right now? And, and basically, like, people's general ideas behind, uh, you know, where where they're heading or where we're heading. We were talking about this before, right? I, I yeah. made the phrase or, or I quoted the line. I think it came from Warren Buffett. Be fearful when everyone's greedy and greedy when everyone's fearful. And right now, I still see a lot of fear in the system, which makes me a little bit bullish overall on 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 stocks and bonds per se. Um, let me I'll try not to get too much into the weeds. Let me back up for a second. Economically speaking, I think that everyone's talking about I shouldn't say everyone. A lot of people are talking about the recession that's going to happen. And I, I had a, an episode that I put out probably six, seven, eight weeks ago now, maybe more. And I the title of it is We Are in a Recession. And I feel like we all talk about recession as if it's coming, yet we ignore the obvious realities of what already happened. So yeah. for instance, think of everything that's per- transpired since last fall. We've had a bear market. We had a pretty wide, a pretty serious banking crisis, yep. right? So well, several relatively large banks, you know, 200 billion plus type banks have failed. Uh, we have seen one of the worst labor shortages in American history. We've seen a horrible housing shortage, right? These are counterintuitive bad things, but in some senses, it is a bad thing. We don't have enough people to work. You're not able to create the goods and services necessary. It's hard to to still find a vehicle out there. So I used this analogy before. Everyone's like, you know, when the fire alarms go off and you're in a big building and everyone goes out and stands in the front and they're like, you know, going crazy and lights are flashing. And everyone's waiting. The Hilton Garden. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So you're standing out front and you're waiting for the flames to come out and like nothing's happening. And then someone goes around to the back of the building and they're like, oh my gosh. And there's just flames pouring out and steel is melting and windows are blowing out. It's in the different section of the building, but the fire is already happening. I sort of feel like we're all the people standing in the front expecting the flames to eventually come, but they've already happened. And the flames may not reach the front of the building because the fire department's already out back working on it. That's kind of where I I feel like the recession is already in the rear view mirror because we've had so much carnage. The other thing, and I don't have a data point on this, but I'd love for an economist to tackle this for me. So government spending is factored into gross domestic product. So I'd like to know how much, think of all the spending we've done in the last couple of years. How much has government spending distorted real GDP data to the point where it reflected not a recession, but growth? But did we actually, in real terms, minus government spending, did we actually experience several quarters of GDP decline? Was all of 2022 as a, for instance, just uh, economic decline? And so I'm, again, I think what most investors are doing to tie this all back together is we're all driving our our, our vehicle through the rearview mirror. And they're thinking that the recession's coming and really they're seeing it out the back. And so my sense is that the stock market's starting to improve. Oftentimes the tech sector can lead us into the next bull run. Tech right. stocks have exploded. I mean, I was calling clients uh, uh, early, early on this year and and talking about a, a few specific companies. 
and I was surprised how much pushback I received from from several of my clients because they felt like they were gonna some of these companies were going to completely deteriorate. I'll give a for instance, and again, this is not a recommendation to anyone. You need to talk to somebody like me to get a recommendation, you know, okay. in a private session. Yes. In a private session, disclaimer here. <laughs> but I was I was recommending NVIDIA to some of my more aggressive clients that had the appetite for risk. And I'm looking at them going, the opportunities are just obvious from a financial standpoint. But I received a lot of pushback regarding NVIDIA. I also received a lot of pushback regarding companies like Tesla. And yep. and and the reason I was somewhat ambitious about these stocks is that they were down. Some of them were down 70%, 60, yeah. 70% in some instances. And so it's like, do we really think NVIDIA, Tesla, Amazon, some of these other big companies are going anywhere? My thought is like, no, they're, no. you know, I don't have, I don't the know the future. Relies on it. The system like the, to innovate, to continue to push our society and our country ahead, we need those companies. Like private sector has always, like the government can't innovate. We're not getting any innovation from our government. We need it from Apple, Google, Correct. Amazon. That's where it all comes from. So it's almost like they're backstopped natively by the government, right? Like you're saying, because it's, they need to continue to, that's why they get all these tax breaks. That's why those companies continue to fly because they have the ability to take some risks and, and chase some moonshots to see if we can further society. So that makes sense. And bear in mind, some of these companies are sitting on incredible amounts of cash still. Yeah. That they yeah. have as a, as a way to defend, but also as a way to innovate and press forward. Yeah. And, and they're all, seems like all these major tech companies are exploring new innovations with, with AI. So, yeah. so to answer, to answer your question, uh, I think there's optimism when it comes to the stock market. Obviously I don't have a crystal ball. I think there's still some serious headwinds. I think the fed tightens again, next meeting, and they do go up a full 50 basis points or half a percent, you know, yeah. that may have a negative impact. There is a point where fed tightening starts to really hurt the economy more and more and more. So on the stock side, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. On the bond side, you have to bear in mind that, again, and I think I said this last episode that I was on here, the stock market and the bond market, they both lead the macro economy. Yeah. So even if we hit a recession this year, we may have already priced that in. And that's mm -hmm. the harsh reality. So for an investor that's just going to sit around waiting for the doom and gloom situation, even if doom and gloom happens, you may have actually statistically already missed the boat. Because bear in mind, on average... The stock market leads the macro economy by a full eight months. Yep. And and so I, I think a lot of the opportunities are sadly already in the rearview mirror, but there's still plenty more opportunities going forward. I would my big caution to an investor today is if you think you can just sit and wait for a, an amazing buying opportunity over the next 12 oh, months, okay. that might be a very foolish, that might be something you deeply regret. Real quickly on the bond markets. Yeah. The bond markets statistically do best several months before the final Fed rate hike. So if the Fed is about to do their final rate hike, we may indeed be kind of in a peak time to move further out on the yield curve. Now, what does that mean? The yield curve is just, just you know, I know your, your viewers probably can't see my hands waving around right oh, now, but... But basically, the further you go out in length on a bond historically the higher the interest that you get. So if you have to right. sit in a 10-year bond, you're going to get rewarded for waiting 10 years for owning a bond. Now, the yield curve can invert. That's a more technical discussion we can discuss another time. That's a whole episode. But but historically, the longer the bond, the more return you get. The shorter the bond, the less return you get. And so 
um, where you can get punished in longer term bonds, though, is that as interest rates are going up, the value of bonds historically have gone down. Well, if we're about to go through a cycle where interest rates at least plateau, if not go back down, we're going into an environment where intermediate and longer term bonds may become very appealing for investors. And the ideal time, if you look at a 10-year treasury, this is uh, from Goldman Sachs. If you were to buy a 10-year treasury bond three months before the final Fed rate hike, the Mm -hmm. average rate of return on a 10-year treasury bond over, and I think they went back to the 60s roughly, uh, I'll have to double check that. The average rate of return was about 18% over the next 12 months on a boring good old 10-year treasury bond. And that return declined to about 15% if you waited to one month before the Fed final Fed rate hike and rate hiking cycle. If you are late, by the way, to the party with bonds, your return on bonds is lower. So like if you waited three months after, I think it fell below 12% versus three months before it was an 18% return. So here's the moral of the story. The bond markets are just like the stock markets. Investors aren't going to wait around for the Fed to do the final rate hike. They're going to price in what they think is the inevitable. So the the goal is, I'd rather you be a little early to the party than to be a little late because being late to the party is actually not very fashionable when it comes to investing. Well, it's it's scary, right? It's it's scary because you think like you know what if I lose money, but you're going to have a longer period of time to make it back anyway. But you're in there, so like you're probably going to realize those gains again. Do you think? Um, I've heard people have been talking about the government should or might want to think about like, do you think there's any world where we see like hundred year bonds? Do you think they go out that far? I, man, I, I would sort of doubt it, but I know that there is a precedent for hundred year bonds. I forget which country has done it. I feel like a couple of European countries did hundred year bonds. Probably the Dutch. They're wild. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like this could turn into a joke. You got to watch the Dutch. Let me tell you. <laughs> Have you ever seen their have you ever seen their 100 year bonds? Wow. <laughs> They'll do wow. some crazy stuff to generate some revenue. No, no um on a, ser- on a serious note, yeah, I think it's always certainly possible. I think the 30 year bond is is long enough if you ask me. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to commit to you're asking somebody to stash their money somewhere where, you know, if you have it and you're playing with it, you might be able to not day trade, but you can make some more gains cuz have we talked about too if you do you follow uh, Scott Galloway, professor? I don't I don't follow Scott Galloway, but I'm going to now. You should. He's I think Prof Prof P R O F G. He's a professor. I can't remember where he is. He's a he's a professor somewhere, but he also has his own podcast. Um, he does a lot of stuff with like Kara Swisher from the tech industry. But he was on top of all these tech stocks like late last year. He was harping on everybody like pour everything you've got into Meta and Google and Tesla and like like you said stocks that just you know. But the, again, I think to the, the larger point there is. Nothing in life, you don't make any gains in life without taking some element of risk. Like there is always going to be some level of risk that you have to feel comfortable taking as an investor or whatever you're doing in any market. Otherwise, like you're saying, it's just going to pass you by. Like right now, it's too late to buy NVIDIA. It's over. It's There's no more, there's not a whole lot left to squeeze out of that because of the incredible amount of run that it had. So you got it. You definitely have to dive in early, but you have to be smart about it too. So that's that's the fun part. That's the fun part of markets, but it takes some risk. Yeah. I think people just, for whatever reason, they get into this mindset of it's down, it's bad, and I don't want to own bad, so I'm not going to buy that stock, as opposed to stepping back and saying, what has materially changed all that much for a chip maker? What has materially changed all that much for 
Tesla specifically. Now there yeah. were some there's there's some things with Tesla. Um, but what has changed all that much with Apple or Google? If anything, on all of those scores, we're seeing innovation around new things like AI for all those companies. Yeah. And so t- to me, instead of seeing that the secular decline, uh, what I saw was possibilities and potential here. And I don't think I'm that much smarter than most other people that work in my industry. I think a lot of other people were saying it, it was just hard to get investors out of that negative mindset. And investors are great in general if they're not coached properly. I, I shouldn't say all. I, I don't. I want to be fair. Some investors really seem to always buy at the high and sell at the low. And there's actually a little bit of data to support. Uh, timing is is usually pretty rough for a lot of you know everyday investors because yeah. fear can be such a powerful force. It's interesting okay. you talk to about like the the tech companies, right? And a lot of their CEOs, founders, etc., are like rock stars to a degree, right? Like there's Elon, there's, you know, Gates and, and uh, Bezos and um, everyone out there, right? And they also value themselves as the thought leaders, as the industry movers, and and they don't want to be last on innovation. So like betting on those people too, I think tends to make sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, to to do another Warren Buffett thing, like you know, buy what you like. And sometimes I like particular things. I know this yeah. is not a popular view, but I like Elon Musk a lot, and I yep. think Elon Musk is defending the right of sp- free speech and free exp- expression at Twitter. Um, ironically, some people view him as an authoritarian figure, which I, I just literally cannot. Yeah, uh, I'm not saying I'm Mensa here or that I'm the smartest man you'll ever meet, but I still can't get my brain around the idea of how Elon Musk is engaging in authoritarian behavior by increasing speech. But whatever, it's a new world. Uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. I'm just a, an old man at heart. I don't see that. into someone specifically and that he was just... so i was gonna so i was gonna say drew are is, we recording i think we are i don't know this is crazy it's the first time we've ever popped on and off we'll have to wait to see uh gibby well, we'll have to finally edit i'll finally have, You're to, gonna have to edit something oh man you know it's fitting you don't have to edit anything i say we just we just call an audible and say there's a slight problem and we're back and we're having fun again yeah, we're crushing. We were we were for a second. Drew and I were like, "Are we still recording or not?" And neither one of us had any idea. We we're just like, "Not sure. Let's just roll with it." Yeah. No, I I have no idea what happens. I think it's three o'clock recording, and all the kids got back from camp. And um, um I was just saying to Drew when before we stopped, and when when he was wrapping up his thought there about like buying things that you like. I remember calling him like six seven years ago and just telling him that i really like the ceo of um shopify and i thought the business had a little bit of juice just because of the nature of like online businesses and e-commerce but yeah it really is you buy like buy buy leaders that you trust i mean these are all buffett principles right like buy businesses that you like that you think are led by people who know what they're doing who have shown the ability to lead like a massive organization so sometimes it really is that simple like you really just have to buy some stuff that 
you like and you trust with people and leaders who know how to run a business and pretty good sentiment. And you can kind of make a career like that's the whole thing. That's the whole Buffett thing is get rich slow, right? Like everybody is in such a rush to get rich, trying to find like the next spike, but that's not how he does it. And he's, I mean, who's been a better investor over the last hundred years, right? Drew, like, is there anybody out there that can even come close to him and Munger? I mean, he's, he's pretty epic. And if you, I saw a chart over the weekend, uh, I think it was on LinkedIn showing like his average hold times on stocks. It's astounding. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just a couple years, but like a short position for him <laughs> is like a whopping two years, right? Yeah. Like that's like to him, that's like day trading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Omaha just does it a little differently. <laughs> yeah. Like that's two year day trading is kind of how he rolls. And then some of his positions, He's zoned for decades in some instances. So I think that it works. I I tend towards investing the same way with clients, but there are times where there, you know, I might move relatively quickly on a more macro idea, but I'd say stock to stock, I I tend to have more of that long view. Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, purchasing what you like, we have a few um, questions for you, Drew, from listeners. Hit me. Hit me. <laughs> came in a little bit early. So Kevin um, from Massachusetts, um, here's his scenario, right? He has probably about 100000 invested in the market, about $60,000 in liquid savings. He's not quite maxing out his 401k and retirement plan, but he's getting close. Um, he also has, he wants to buy a 20% share in a minor league hockey team. That's going to cost about $100,000 to invest in. Um, He's already got about $800,000. He's 36 years old. He's got about $800,000 in his retirement plan. Um, Can he afford uh, that that loan? Uh, He wants to buy a minor hockey league team. Minor league hockey team. That's seeing about 2% uh, return on investment. But he has he has marketing plans. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, so there's multiple ways to skin a cat when it comes to investing. And what was his name again? Kevin. Kevin. All right. So Kevin, what I would say is if you're going to invest in something like a minor league hockey team, just know that it's you're engaging in speculation. Okay, so you have a decent net worth already. So you've got a nice nest egg, which is good. If you had very little wealth uh, altogether and a little liquid wealth, I would say this is a terribly bad idea. Like I would highly recommend against something like this. And I don't know every detail about Kevin, so sure. it's hard for me to right. There, there's factors like what is your total debt? Do you know Mike if he has any 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 like major debt beyond say a mortgage? No, I, I think he's pretty much debt free. Okay. Yeah. I would say go for it if 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 you're excited about the idea, recognizing that when you engage in speculation like this, which this is what this is, it's highly speculative, you run the risk of losing the entire amount of money. So here's here's the barometer. If you are, are at all, if you cannot sleep at night, if you lose the full, you said it's a hundred thousand. Hundred thousand. If you lose the full hundred thousand dollars. And you know that will make you not sleep at night. You have your answer. Don't do it. If you can invest the hundred grand and literally say, "I may never see a penny of this money again," but you're willing to take that risk, then go for it. Okay, 
I like it. Kev, you can buy you can buy your uh, pond hockey team. Um, just just know you may lose every penny of it, and that's that's the that's the reality of it. Okay, more upside. There you go. Um, we have one from Nick too uh, in New Hampshire, actually, um, who wants to join. You know, he's he's basically looking at about a five thousand dollar investment in a golf membership. Um, oh, Drew's going to approve that. Yeah. Stamp. Um, nothing like substantial in terms of debt. <laughs> uh, he didn't give me all of his savings or what he has in the market or, or 401k, but, um, you know, they're, they're banking about a thousand dollars, uh, over their expenses, um, every month per month per month. And so is this the $5,000? Is this an initiation fee? No, or it's is an this... annual annual cost. No initiation fee at this course. Oh, wow. it's a good deal. Do you know what Nick does for a living? Um, he's a farmer. Okay, so Nick's a farmer. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so when it comes to things like golf memberships or buying a nice car or investing in a cool watch, sometimes the way I look at those things is find ways to basically finance it, right? And so... Like for instance, if you have a golf membership and you can find a new client, golf memberships are fantastic because there's a lot of wealthy individuals that might buy whatever you're selling. And so for and as a for instance in my world, I do have a private golf membership and all it takes is landing one or two decent clients and essentially it's getting paid for. And those are people I right. wouldn't have met otherwise. Yep. So I tend to not look at these types of situations in a vacuum. There's some context. As a farmer, though, he's probably unlikely to you know, realistically, there's probably not a sort of a client that he can woo over at the golf course, right? Because the nature of it is he's selling like Unless commodities. there's some Monsanto executives there, otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> there I don't know what type of farming he's in. He's just a <laughs> listener from the streets. <laughs> Love it. All right. Uh, yeah, I think as long as you're uh, over a thousand, that's fan- that's fine. And it comes down to what you want to spend your money on with one huge caveat. Um, I don't know your full financial situation, so I don't know how you're tracking towards retirement. Attention. And so, right. So, so if I knew more about you, it's why I'm bad with these questions because I always want to know everything about it's somebody. the right answer. Cause you're not just, you were saying at the beginning of this podcast, I'm not just going to talk. I'm going to give authentic, good advice. Yeah. Let, let me, let me pick it. on, I love it. let me, let me pick you're, on these are made up listeners, by the way. So I, I, I knew it. I knew it. So, all right, so let's talk about Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman. Um, they well, deal with. Make you pick between. Yeah, so I need a pick. Who Who are you going with? So Susie, Dave, Susie Ramsey. or Dave? Can or Jim you only Ramsey. have one? To listen to the you rest. Gotta pick, you got to pick one of these three people to bring into your firm as a partner. Oh my Dave gosh! Ramsey, none of none. Susie, no hard Ramsey. no on Dave Ramsey. <laughs> Dave Ramsey, I'm exiting the industry altogether. You like could bring hard Kramer, exit. You could bring Kramer in and just ask yeah, him for his advice and do the exact opposite, like Costanza. That might be you know, bad. yeah, that is so true. He is the George Costanza. Because remember in that episode, George yeah. starts. Jerry's like, "What if you just if your instincts are always wrong? What if you always are the opposite of your instincts?" Yeah, yeah. that's so that could be. Kramer. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but like maybe Kramer's in play just because you could get. Anti advice from he's going to be the head of alternative equity trading. <laughs> In other words, he's going to make a recommendation, and then I'm going to have uh, people shorting. Yes. <laughs> uh. So um, let me pick on the Dave Ramseys and the Susie Ormans. 
they have such a teeny little tiny uh, snapshot of these individuals yeah. and they make sweeping aggressive yes. recommendations. I actually think what they do is a little bit reckless and yeah. foolish. It's And they're so – one of the things I don't like about Dave Ramsey is he can be such a jerk to people. Yeah, like, yeah. like people will call in and they'll say they'll have like a truck payment and and he'll be so nasty about it of how foolish. But he's, I still feel like he doesn't know everything about them. And there's always, there's always context. As I learn and know more about people – like I know people that I think make bad uh, life decisions and money decisions – that dude drive old beat up cars and they try to be frugal there, but they're bad everywhere else. But Dave always gets really obsessed, upset about like the car payment thing. It, like right. really eats him alive. But then I know people that literally have two or three thousand dollar monthly car payments. But if you knew what their monthly cash flow was, you like wouldn't even worry about it. I mean, yeah. if if you're making 70 grand a year and you want to have a Ferrari payment, or I'm sorry, a month, and you want to have a Ferrari payment and the Ferrari payment's four grand, whatever. Like you're making $70,000. If you make less one day, you just get rid of it. I just think there's there's so much more context and nuance to what I do as a wealth advisor that I think calling into these radio stations and getting quick advice, Isn't you're not going to really, you're, you're not going to get good advice. You're just not. Yeah. Do you, fo- you follow, um, do you know the name uh, Ramit Sethi? He's that guy that he wrote, like, I will teach you to be rich. And he's got his own podcast. And essentially, I, I thought of him because you just made a good point. He teaches people, well, the first thing he teaches people is that renting is very, very likely going to be a better investment for you than owning a home. That's like his whole thing. And there's a lot of nuance to that too. Sure. But the other thing he talks about, and I've been hearing this sentiment a lot more lately, is what's the point of earning and, and growing all of your wealth just to put it and have a number to look at? Don't you want to use it to enjoy the fruits of that labor? So his big thing is you should spend aggressively on the things that make you happy and then Agreed. we avoid buying anything that doesn't. So he puts he puts that mm. sort of onus on how happy that event or experience or object or thing makes you and you should spend aggressively on it and then cut everything else is kind of how he talks. So that made me think of that a little bit because you're no, kind of- I, I love that because it's like never spend any money. And then when you're old and you're deteriorating, then you can yeah. actually enjoy life a little bit. And I think we have a very backwards perspective on retirement in this country. You know, sadly, I've been doing this for a de- over a decade now. I'm, you know, some of my closest friends, you become close friends with your clients. I mean, yeah. you know, these are people you love and care about. And I've so many cool old guys I've gotten to know over the years and they retire and they die. And it's a, sort of a, a really sad, unfortunate reality. And I've seen more, way more deaths than I ever wish I had to see. And so this, I'm going to wait forever and pinch every penny and avoid having beautiful moments with maybe your family while the family is young. Yep. I, I just don't like, that's the Dave Ramsey mindset of like, never spend a penny. Yep. And and I'll give it for instance, like we talked about this last time, I have an RV. It's a terrible investment. RVs are a terrible investment. Like it's the stupidest thing to buy from an investment standpoint. But from a life standpoint, I get to go to the campground with my kids. We get to light a fire. Like I'm living life. And I feel like a lot of people are saving money and they're dead men walking. And then there's a lot of people that are spending money. And the people that are watching them spend money are judging them, not even knowing what they actually make. And you know what? Maybe they have a few less bucks later in life. 
but they got to live a full life while they're young and healthy, particularly while their kids are young. And yeah, so this right. whole delaying life altogether, I don't know. I'm I'm starting to look at things quite differently. Have you ever Mom. read Tim Ferriss's book, Four Hour Workweek? Yep. Yes. Yep. It reminds me of his mindset of like, why are you saving all that? Like his whole his whole thing is like, what is the point of this money to begin with? Yeah. Like, why are you even saving it? Like, what do you even want to uh, uh, accomplish? But go ahead, Matt. Money's a renewable resource to me. Like you can't, how, how hard you work will directly relate to how much of it you can make. So that also factors in, right? I think, but your, your point is like, I think there's a blend there that everybody, you, 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 I know you recommend this and we've had these conversations, invest wisely long-term, but then spend some of those riches along the way, knowing that you're basically just drawing down off of what you're going to be continuing to make off of those investments long-term. I, but I'm with you. I don't think it should be A or B binary, like save everything, spend everything. I think you do have to find that nice balance. But the, the, yeah. there definitely is a balance. I'll say this. If I listen to Dave Ramsey, and I mean this genuinely, mm. if I listen to Dave Ramsey and his thoughts on debt, I would be worth probably one fiftieth of my current net worth. Yeah. Really, truly, because it would have been never take risk, never take on debt. And I've taken some risks in my professional life before. I just did a massive risk in my professional life. and. And, um, you know, I don't usually talk about my own wealth, but I'll just tell you from a practical standpoint, my net worth has ballooned. There's been a few times in life where I saw my net worth really pop. And each time that it popped, it was because I took on a little debt and took some major risk. Yeah. And that is not where you're going to hear from a lot of these like financial gurus. And the reality, if you really dig, is I bet you they did some of those risks in life too. For sure. And that's how they got it. Like, I'm sorry, at some point you need to take a little loan out to get your endeavor going. Yeah. And then you pay the loan back and then you have a whole enterprise that you've created that has tangible value. So you now own like an infusion of capital is an accelerant to, like you said, whatever you're building, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Like it's, it, you, it doesn't, it's not, it's just not linear. Like wealth growth isn't linear. It's really not like you do. I think you really do have to take like, I feel like the biggest hurdle that a lot of people face, and you know this better than I, is figuring out what their risk quotient is and what they're even willing to do on that front. Otherwise, you can't jump. You can't leap. You can't make those pops that you're talking about. So I don't know. I feel like people skip that. That seems like one that people just skip, skip right over because risk or, is inherently scary. Or they don't know which Agreed. risks to take, yeah. right? Like that's you know that's one of the tougher things to navigate too. People might yeah. have a, a larger quotient for risk and- at different stages in their life, right? And and depending on like kids, no kids, and are they 20, 30, 40. But um, but yeah, no, I I um I think that's definitely true. If the Fed is gonna keep printing money, we should I mean there's different types of debt too, right? Drew, like we've talked about this, like maybe credit card debt with a 22% APY that you don't you don't pay off every month. That's really bad debt. That's actually crippling. Taking out a loan at 3% to help you potentially build something that can return you X that and pay it back. Like that's not terrible debt. So there yeah, are definitely assets. Listen, if you've, if you make, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year and you're kind of living paycheck to paycheck and, and, and you want to go out and have a thousand dollar truck payment, then yeah, it's probably a really horrible idea. Or if your credit cards are accumulating because you have a finite level of income due to what you do for a living, if you have a salary, and I think there's a difference between a salaried employee and a commission employee, by the way, too. I think some of that, again, this is the nuance of planning. If you have, I, I, I hate the word nuance, complexity of planning. 
Oh, nice. uh, nuance actually nuance actually means to obscure. I don't know if people realize that, so I'm not trying to obscure everything. Um, there's a level of complexity to plan, and I think people forget. And one of the one of the things I think about, if you're a salesperson, as a for instance, you have uh, an, in some organizations infinite upside in terms of earning potential. Yep. So if you're feeling a little stretched for a little time, you can go land a few more clients or a few more contracts and you can pay for the things that you have, or you can easily work yourself towards it. But if you're in a finite income and you want to go get you know, a new Tesla and you want to have a big payment, but you can't afford the big payment, that's where disastrous debt starts to really haunt people. So to be clear, I'm not advocating bad debt, but is it? here's my thing, and this is not what you're going to hear from a typical financial person. If you make great money and you happen to have a big car payment, but have lots of cash flow to pay for it, who cares? Yeah. I mean, really, who cares? Because you could technically have no debt and be a member at an expensive club and be paying tons of money to be a member of that club and have zero debt involved. But you could have a car payment, the fourth of it, but no one says anything about the club payment. Well, one of those is not, an asset. It's not debt. So- yeah, one of those is an asset and one is not. A club membership is not an asset. Well, I mean, in your case, it is an asset. Right. But in most people's right. case, membership right. to a golf club is not an asset. You cannot use that to grow wealth, but you know, you could technically. Yeah. 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 Context. The problem so with the Susie Ormans and the Dave Ramseys oh. and all those other people is they have zero context and it's painting with broad strokes. And I can tell you that it's not often that I say the same thing to the next person when they walk into my conference room. Yep. Love yep. it. I like that. That's a good, that's a, that is, I think that's a very good answer to that. That's good. Nice. True. Yeah. We we're talking a little bit about family and RV. I know that might not be in the, the cards for, for this summer, <laughs> but the summer vacation, tell us a little bit. What, what, what are the plans? Yeah. So uh, I married a good Irish Italian girl. And uh, we actually honeymooned in Ireland when we were first married and we scheduled a trip to Ireland with a fam. And so we're going back to the motherland and I even, I have sadly no Irish in me and I wish I did because it's it's such a cool culture. (laughs) She's got all the fun stuff. I'm like English and German and like a little bit of French and, and she's got like Irish and Italian. I'm like, I'm so jealous, but uh. I even have like a an Irish wedding band. Um, it's a Celtic knot. So I'm excited to go back there. And then, you know, we had uh, TMI here, but we had our our uh, our firstborn was at, you know nine months after our honeymoon. So the Irish thing is real. Um, and so now we're going back with all we're all we're going back with all the children. So it's it's uh it's gonna be fun. We're gonna see a lot of the southern part of Ireland and the cliffs and. Um, we're, we're pretty pumped. They all, they're all at an age where they're going to be able to enjoy that. And it won't be a burden for them to be like, you you like schlepping them around all those places. Right. To like, is that another part of this? Like they're going to be able to take it and enjoy it. Yeah. I think most of the kids will really enjoy it. Some of the younger kiddos, you know, that might be, you know, it might be not quite as fun, but I think in their own way, they'll all have a little bit of a magical experience. So, and it's, it's going to be a lot of nature and outside. And so it's hard to beat. I think with kids, it's hard to beat nature. I think if we were doing museums and, you know, in, in Italy, that would be maybe not as fun for them, but everyone loves nature and creation. So nature always wins. Gibby's always, it's going to be awesome. Gibby loves nature. He's always in the Every time I, I talk to him, he's chopping wood or he's throwing. You a mountain man? 
Yeah, he's not I'm, I'm a mediocre mountain man. <laughs> <laughs> like a Robert Redford out there in the wild. Yeah, yeah clean. Man. <laughs> 62% of Robert Redford. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Drew, Drew, thank you. Um, I think our listeners um, are probably going to increase awesome. their wealth by about at least, I don't know, 78% return on listening to the podcast. Where can they find your podcast again? I know Spotify, I was listening earlier, um, Apple, but uh, what what should our listeners search for? Yeah, so if you go to my website, BensonWealthMGT.com, that's my main website for my wealth management um, group. And uh, there's, you know, there's a tab there to go to the to the podcast. But you can also, so we're finally launching on Spotify. So I do have some regulatory constraints in terms of communication. And so it's not as simple as just blasting it. We are finally getting all of our episodes shortly. Actually, this week, we should have all the episodes uploaded to Spotify, which would be great. Awesome. And so, so yeah, my website and should be on Spotify. And then we started doing short videos for social media that we'll be distributing more frequently as well. Awesome. You're crushing it, man. It's awesome. I've enjoyed listening to those little, the shorts, like we talked about at the very beginning when you got started, those are great little nuggets of just info. Just think it gets me thinking like, Oh, I'm going to go investigate this to your, to our point earlier. It's fun. Cause these are, these are areas that I like to dabble in, but I'm not an expert. So it's fun to be like, Oh, that'll take my curiosity in that direction. It's, it's cool to get a little bit of guidance in a direction of like something that might be fun to learn. So I'm a teacher at heart. So I, I, I try to ask good questions and then you know, if I can help educate people a little bit, that's the goal. Well, yeah. you've, you've accomplished it here. And uh, thanks, man. Thank you, Drew. Thanks, buddy. Um, thank you. Always, we'll have you back. And listeners, we will um, be posting some of these shares on Instagram, Facebook, and and uh, all that you need in order to get um, more Drew. So thanks, everyone. Have a good afternoon. Have thank a good you. evening. Thank you.